ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Before a global audience of nearly 200 million viewers, a progressive synth metal band from Perth represented Australia at this year's Eurovision Grand Final. Voyager frontman Danny Estrin began the song sitting in a 1980s open-top Toyota sports car, a neon flashing guitar in the passenger seat beside him. And for the next three glorious minutes, there were wind machines, there were smoke machines, there were strobe lights, there were energetic drum and guitar solos, there was headbanging. The crowd went wild and Voyager, with their song Promise, came a very impressive ninth overall. Daddy Estrin is my guest today and behind the big hair and the fierce mo is a surprising personal story involving a law firm, extreme fans in Mexico City and a piano from the Soviet Union. Hi, Danny. Hi, nice to be here. And I literally just got goosebumps just hearing that beautiful summary of those three minutes, which were probably the most glorious three minutes of my life. (laughs) Well, we will get to them in good time, but let's begin earlier in your story. I mean, Perth is home to you you now, but where was home as a little kid? Home was Buchholz in der Nordheide, which is a small place on the outskirts of Hamburg in uh, Germany, or West Germany as it was in 1981, before the reunification, Um, and that was home. And was this the part of the world that both your mum and dad were from? No, uh, mum was from Hamburg, from from the same place, essentially, and my father was from the Soviet Union. So he was born in uh, Bielohirsk, or Bielogorsk, which is Crimea, Uh, controversially now, um, and probably back then as well. And he migrated from the Soviet Union in the 1970s to Germany, um, met my mother under very, very difficult circumstances and married under very difficult circumstances. And I guess I'm the product of that. So I consider myself very lucky. What do you mean, Danny, difficult circumstances? Well, it was the Soviet Union and for a uh, Soviet citizen to uh, marry someone who is outside the Soviet Union and apply for emigration, that is a feat in itself. So it was during Brezhnev times and it was uh, one of those sort of love stories which you almost can't believe when you hear. It's one of the most beautiful love stories of, you know, bureaucratic nightmares, red tape, not being able to see each other, you know, uh, writing letters which you know would be opened by secret service officials with st- using steam, it's essentially not knowing whether there was a few for these two people. So it's a wonderful, wonderful love story. How had they met originally? So they had met uh, when my father was uh, a visiting academic uh, in Germany, in Aachen, and uh, they were sort of in their, in their late 30s, some faculty party um, at the university uh, where my, my mother was working. They met, they fell in love, and they weren't allowed to at the time because there was obviously a lot of pressure to not socialise too much with, with the Westerners from, from the Soviet side. And then at some point, my father had to go back to the Soviet Union to resume his normal career as an academic. And what followed was a, a number of years of, e- of I was going to say email, no goodness, <laughs> of telephone and letter correspondence. My mum visiting the Soviet Union, staying at, you know, hotels that were designated for Westerners, which had no entry for Soviet citizens, meeting covertly, trying to exchange paperwork, trying to get the, the applications for immigration in, um, signing forms and just doing what essentially seemed a completely impossible task until finally they were able to be married in Moscow. And uh, my, my father finally got the approval to, to leave the Soviet Union and move to Germany wow. in the late 1970s, 78, I, I believe it was. Did he tell you many stories of, of what life was like for him in the Soviet Union? Was that something you spoke about? Absolutely. And having grown up, uh, and he, he taught me Russian, I'm very thankful to him for that because I, I think I understand more of the Soviet uh, humour, the zeitgeist, and I understand a lot of the Soviet jokes that he tells me from that time, most of which involve something about queuing up somewhere <laughs> for various things like bread, butter, and, and those kinds of things, which you simply can't imagine. So it's a life that I, I cannot imagine. Um, likewise, I can't imagine the life in, in post-war Germany, which is essentially where, where my mother grew up. So hearing those stories from both my mother and my father from vastly opposite ends of the spectrum of hardship, I think, uh, are very difficult for me to relate in, uh, you know, in, in, in a society where I grew up essentially having, having everything that I needed and there would be no, no true suffering. You were, were lucky enough to know both of your grandmothers, Danny. What are your memories yes. of your mum's mum, first of all? I remember sitting in her very smoke-filled kitchen and eating chocolate-covered raisins with her. I remember playing solitaire with her and I remember watching the tennis 
it was such a wonderful time. And it, it reminds me that having a grandparent is so nice at all stages of your childhood because they don't even need to do much. You just need to kind of just hang out with them, you know, just be with them and just enjoy their company. But it's the it's the stale smoke that still to, to this day uh, reminds me of that time. And it's not a pleasant, it's, it's, it's not an unpleasant memory rather. So when I when I get into a car, a smoker's car, I'm, I, I reminisce uh, of, the, of, the, of the wonderful smell of cold smoke on the on the wallpaper of, uh, of Langenhorn, which is where they were living. Uh, in you Hamburg remind me of my grandmother, your smoky car brings back memories of my, of my grandmother. What about your father's mother, who I imagine was still in, in the Soviet Union? What did she you was, get to know about her? She was a, a stern, elegant and beautiful woman. Um, and I remember her very, very vividly. And she far outlived my grandfather. But I remember her coming to visit us in Germany. I remember visiting them in the Soviet Union. And the love and affection for me, being a product of uh, you know a German mother and a, and, and a Russian father, in very, very difficult times, especially for her, having sort of, you know, been born in, in the 1920s and having gone through World War Two, It was this amazing, unquestioned love and affection that had no, you know, historical undertones. And um, I will forever be grateful for the, the times that I spent with her. This babushka of yours did something amazing for you. Tell me how she brought you a piano from the Soviet yes. Union. Well, her and, and Dedushka, so my, um, so her, her husband, which is my uh, paternal grandfather, decided that, you know, musical Danny needed a piano. And of course, there was no simpler task than getting a, <laughs> a, a piano, an upright piano called Zarya 3 from the Soviet Union uh, by train, no less. <laughs> to, a piano uh, by yes, train. A piano by train, yes. I believe at some point it was dismantled by customs officers and then sort of put back together probably by my grandfather himself, although that story gets a bit murky at that point. Um, but you can imagine, you know, they lived on in, in a city called Rostov on Don, which is quite far in sort of in the Soviet Union. So if you imagine geographically how hard it is to get anything across the border at all, let alone a, an upright piano, when it finally arrived, it was this this beautiful, I think it was some sort of walnut colour piano, which I, I remember cherishing so much. I don't think I realised at the time how difficult it would have been to get it across. I mean, even Danny, nowadays, I don't you know, understand. Were there no pianos to be had in Germany? Why did this piano have to travel from the Soviet <laughs> Union? Because people from the Soviet Union like to make things a little bit more complicated <laughs> than they need to. And, you know, pianos were very, very expensive, obviously, at the time. I remember my parents saved up to buy me the, the piano that would sort of le- later lead me into my my early teens, um, which was a Gordian Steinweg. And at some point I remember having two pianos in the house, the the old Soviet one and the and the new one. But I don't know, it's just one of those things which, which my grandfather and my grandmother thought w- would be a good idea. And, and they were, you know. I, th- I remember they brought, they brought clarinets and violins and all sorts of things because I think they were good instruments. They were made well and they were so much cheaper, probably after all the transportation costs. <laughs> Not so much. I think a lot of that is is sort of ingrained in me as well. Now I will go to great lengths for a gag, you know, great lengths for something that's that's ridiculous. Got... <laughs> and no matter how much effort. As you describe it, I mean, is it a very musical family then that you come from? My mother is very musical. She has a beautiful voice and she played uh, guitar in various youth groups. But uh, essentially, no, there was a love for music on my father's side. And my, my father can certainly whistle in tune, but he certainly can't hold a tune himself. Um, no disrespect to Professor Estrin there. He has other, other, other academic qualities. But no, I think the, the enthusiasm for, I guess, encouraging a child, which sort of seemed to have some sort of gift and some sort of talent, was certainly there. But there was no musicality in terms of, there was no concert pianist in you know, in the Soviet part of my family, if that's what you're asking. Piano smugglers rather than piano players. They were into the <laughs> piano smugglers. There's a, there's a movie title, <laughs> The Piano Smugglers of the Soviet Union, from Rostov to Hamburg, 1988. <laughs> what sort of music did your father value, this intellectual of father of well, yours? Well, he valued classical music. He valued, you know, sort of Soviet bards. Certainly not the 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 pop music uh, that is that was around back at the time, and certainly not not the music that's around now. And I must say, I think a lot of that sort of musical snobbery has made its way into into my tastes as well. But 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 rightly so, because I think a lot of the things that that are you know mass produced are necessarily the best quality. So you had your piano. You needed a piano teacher. Who was your first teacher in Hamburg? 
My first teacher was a gentleman called Burkhard Kering, um, who is now a professor at the Musikhochschule in Hamburg. And I caught up with him recently, actually. He remembered me as a very um, enthusiastic, energy-driven little boy. And I was an experiment for him, apparently, because he said, look, I didn't really want to teach children. And uh, in fact, after you, I'd never taught children again. <laughs> you were a one-off. I was a one-off. Um, but he said he could see something in me. So I remember him. I remember uh, I remember being taught uh, by him in his little apartment. Uh, he was only very young. He was only a student himself. And that just sort of led to a, a chain of a very, very uh, interesting piano and violin teacher throughout my childhood. Tell me about Alice Carrard, if I'm saying her name correctly. Yes, yeah, you're jumping forward to, to Australia now where one of my piano teachers was Madame Carrard, who was 96 when she was my piano teacher. She had two grand pianos in her house in Netherlands. She was none other than a student of Bella Bartok, the Hungarian composer herself, and she had taught none other than David Helfgott. So when I saw her uh, little fingers jump across the, uh, the, the keyboards and sometimes affectionately whack me, where she's like, no, Daniel, more feeling, more feeling, <laughs> as I was probably butchering some Rachmaninoff at some point. I, I remember it really well. And I remember this, this incredibly inspiring old woman who at 96 was still giving concerts, I think. But <laughs> these were incredible sort of role models that I had in my life. And uh, despite the fact that I never practiced properly in the way that I was supposed to, they were always, they always saw something in me and they were always very congratulatory of my sight reading. They would say, well, you obviously hasn't, haven't practiced, Daniel, but you know, your sight reading is impeccable because <laughs> this is the first time you've obviously played this piece. There's <laughs> a wonderful freshness to your approach there to this is, piece. There is, very fresh, yes. <laughs> so it was when she you... was a bit more brutal than that, yeah. <laughs> it was when you were, were just 11 that you and your mum and dad moved from Hamburg to Perth. How did you yes. take being told this news that you were going to be moving across the world? Well, it didn't help that the classmates at the Friedrich Ebert Gymnasium in Hamburg, Harburg at the time, were like, what do you mean Australia? Haven't you heard about the hole in the ozone layer? And here's a book that we got you called Dangerous Australians, filled with, you know, era kanjis and funnel webs and, Truly, and all sorts of other things. they gave you a, and a book of dangers that you were going I've to face. I've still got it now. Oh yeah, that's gosh. fine. I felt like I was just going to this, this absolute, this abject hell. That I was getting ready to be burnt by this hole in the ozone layer and eaten by sharks. Look, I felt a sense of trepidation, um, I, I remember, but I don't think I really ever fitted in in Germany either. So it was kind of like a bit of a sense of adventure. I think the main thing that was obviously on my mind was I didn't speak any English mm -hmm. and um, I didn't realise how shocking that change would be once we did move eventually in 1992. What do you remember about landing here? What were your first impressions of, of Western Australia? Oh, I remember the eucalyptus smell. I remember the heat I remember the kookaburras and the crows and I remember this this vast landscape and I remember there just being very few people around. Perth in 1992, I mean, it was a bit of a wasteland, to be honest. You'd go to the central business district and there was just no one there. Um, that's changed significantly. And I guess I just remember being filled with this, this sense of trepidation as to what is this country that is literally on the other side of the world, so far removed from everything, where I don't understand the language. I'm here with my mullet and my rat's tail, which was cool in Germany at the time. How the hell am I going to fit into this society? Your father was taking up a position at the university, but for your mum, I, I guess she was coming as, as his wife and as your mother. What sort of adjustment was, was this new country for her, do you think? Huge, huge adjustment. Um, I mean, she was in her late 40s and her English was very, very rudimentary. And she, you know, she had the full sort of whack on the head migration experience of having to settle, of having to deal with a culture that was vastly different. And I think I, I will never understand those challenges. You know, coming here at 11 is, is vastly different than coming to a new country at the age of 48 or 50. I can always imagine myself, you know, moving to Turkey now, for instance, going, all right, here you go, settle. You know, uh, make some friends. And it must have been the same for, for my mother. And I think a lot of the cultural differences I see to this day, Germans have a, have a wonderful sense of directness, which didn't necessarily always gel with the sort of, you know, uh, beating around the bush kind of Australianisms, you know. She would say, I ran into so-and-so and they said, oh, we should catch up for a coffee. But I never heard from her again. It's like, well... <laughs> 
People don't really mean that. People don't mean I'm going to actually catch up for a coffee. It's just like, well, probably see you next time. So a lot of these sort of nuances and, and mannerisms. And, and what about you as a, as a young kid? How did you go about picking up English? Well, my parents decided to put me into an intensive language centre at a primary school, uh, sort of halfway through year six. But there was a, a large contingent of migrants from El Salvador there. So I ended up you know, learning curse words in Spanish rather than English. <laughs> So after two weeks of that, they just decided, let's just put them into a normal primary school. And I remember being in Nedlands Primary School and, you know, coming in as a German kid with a mullet and a rat's tail halfway through year six, when everyone had already had their friends, it was a horrible time. Mm. Um, it was it, it was one of those experiences that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. You know, you're there sitting in a class and Mr. Martin would say, well, all right, we're going to do a quiz. Daniel, first question, what's blah, blah, blah. And I literally spoke, I said, I could say yes and no. So it was a sink or swim type of experience and, you know, I remember making friends with a couple of people who had similar hobbies or similar interests. Cars was one of them. There was one guy that was just really into cars. So, you know, that's, that's a ling- that was a lingua franca for us. Um, you know, I could play reasonable soccer, so that was something. And then music, obviously. Uh, music was, was difficult at the time because while it is a common language, you've got uh, the instruction in a, in a completely different language. I remember there was one moment where I spoke to Mr Atkinson, who was an Irish gentleman who was the music teacher, and I had a little uh, German-English dictionary in, in my hands, which I would carry around everywhere, which was, you know, didn't really add to my coolness factor. <laughs> but I, I, I remember him saying, Daniel, you need a cummerbund for the performance. Oh, I was like, God. what is he talking about? What's a cummerbund? <laughs> of course, I had to look it up. And then I said, oh, well, along with my cummerbund, I need, uh, what is it? And I looked it up in my dictionary. I need a necktie, Mr. Atkinson, a necktie. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> it was a necktie, of course, you know. <laughs> and so these kinds of these kinds of everyday kind of, you know, stumbles. I'm sure it was make, very entertaining um, for the other kids in the class, but maybe not so much for, for not you. Not so much. It's, it's, it's devastating. When you write a, you know, you write a poem, your first poem in your, in your English language, you write it and you put it on a wall with all the other kids and, you know, you sign it off, Daniel Estrin, and then someone writes, is a nerd behind it. And you're like, oh, oh God, I don't even know what a nerd is. I have to look it up. <laughs> so, They're under so necktie. Oh, well, under necktie. Aren't you showing them now, Daniel, as all I can think? This story has a happy ending. You won a a music scholarship in high school to an all-boys school. How did you fit in there? Oh, fantastically. How do you, how do you think? I mean, <laughs> Is goodness. there a slight touch of irony uh, in, in no, the tone there? No, absolutely. Yes, it was even more traumatic, I would say, <laughs> because all of a sudden you've got a very sports-centred all-boys school where it was like socks up and get your hair cut. And I remember being dragged to the hairdresser to get my hair cut, even though I sat in the headmaster's office one day and he had a picture of himself there with long hair in the 70s and also a picture of Jesus on the wall, <laughs> also with long hair. And I pointed out the... You know, the extreme irony there that you were telling me to get a haircut when Jesus was allowed. But anyway, that's that's another matter. Look, it was difficult. It was difficult because, you know, I was very much into music and I wasn't in the first 11 cricket or whatever. So, you know, I would hide in the music centre and find music friends uh, during sports. And I'd have the wonderful excuse of being in the WA Youth Orchestra on Saturday mornings where everyone else would be doing baseball or softball or whatever else they would be doing. It was a difficult time. Kids were, I don't think, I mean, kids were generally quite malicious at the time. And, you know, when they cotton on that you're German, oh, you're a Nazi. So, you know, I had you know, swastikas engraved into my locker. I had, uh, you know, pictures of Hitler stuck on my back. You know, it was just, just dumb, dumb stuff that's ignorant. But obviously as a just German kid, having grown up with that history, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to, to digest. Um, so music really was a, was a huge, I guess, escape factor for me. And I was able to really immerse myself in that subculture. What music were you listening to as a teenager? Pretty much all classical music uh, and a bit of Schlager and a bit of Eurovision stuff from my parents, LPs um, from, from back in, in Germany. And then there was this sort of like top 40 stuff, which I just listened to because I, that's what everyone else was listening to. But then I got into Nirvana and then probably at the age of 15, it was, it was this heavy, heavy, majestic music that I heard. And I was like, what is this? It was three hours of power on Triple J and I heard Love You to Death by a band called Typo Negative. And it was heavy and it was melodic and it was, was ephemeral and it was, it was erotic and it was beautiful. And I thought, what is this magic? And that really started that, 
the, well, some say a, a, a downfall, some say <laughs> uh, a, a majestic rise into the depths of, of, of what is essentially heavy music or heavy metal. And it wasn't the, the metal that people think about, you know, it's not your Slayer, Limp Bizkit, Sepultura type sort of chest-beating macho stuff. It was metal or heavy music with an air of sophistication. And I think I was the only kid at the school who was into that sort of subculture and subgenre. And that gave me, you know, it gave me agency and it gave me a bit of power because, you know, I was the dark one. I was the, I was the one that people would be scared of, you know, and that's all right. That's whatever it takes. <laughs> that's better than having confusion over the cummerbund. Having the dark lord energy is definitely, oh, sure. definitely a step up. <laughs> Were you making your own music as well as a teenager? I was, I was. I released a solo album under the name Nachthimmel, which means night sky in German. <laughs> and um, I was I was entrepreneurial. I got it onto cassette tape. I had it professionally, you know, mixed and mastered and put onto a, a tape. And I put it into the shops, into 78 Records in Perth, into Dada Records here in, in Perth on, on consignment. And I remember even making the local charts, believe it or not. That's fantastic. Because in the first, yeah, I thought so too. Of course, the teachers at the school thought it was less fantastic when I gave it to them and they were like, well, I remember the principal saying, well, thanks, Daniel, I've had a listen. It's not, not my style of music. I was like, well, thank you, Mr. Inverarity. That's very good. But, you know, perhaps from a pedagogical perspective, you can decide maybe it's good to encourage a young boy, you know, who in year 10 has released his first solo album to maybe go, let's give him a pat on the back instead of saying no. After all, we did give him a music scholarship. Yeah, that's, anyway, yeah. no resentment. No. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, clearly you've moved well past that. So your music was this, this big passion and this talent. Did you imagine that it would be your future when you finished school? What what do you remember imagining future might look like? I thought, well, I'm definitely going to continue this and I want to continue doing this as a passion, whether I would do it as a, as a career, probably not. And I, I, I've always been quite risk averse. So I thought, well, I better do the right thing and do something responsible. And my parents said, well, what about law? And I said, goodness, no. A terrible idea. Law, absolutely. My my right brain, creative brain, isn't isn't meant for that. You know, that's all left brain stuff. But I did law and arts at the University of Western Australia, which is where my my father was as well. And they were the best years of my life, I would say, in terms of you know those formative years because you get to you get to meet interesting people. You really get to discover yourself. You know, that impression you had that law wasn't creative, that it was all left brain. Was that true? I think that the older I get, the more I realise that law is is very creative and it has a very, very huge creative element to it. And people who are creative are drawn to the law and, and sometimes are drawn away from the law. You know, look at people like Sean McAuliffe, you know, Tom Gleisner, Julian, Julian Morrow. These are all, these are all ex-lawyers who have been drawn to more the creative side. But something must have drawn them to the law at some point. And it doesn't have to be dry. It can be very, very interesting. It can be very, very people-based. And, you know, the interaction between those grey areas and that black and white, especially for administrative law, that's what really drew me to immigration law, which, you know, I'm still kind of doing today. Once you you graduated, Danny, and, and got that first paycheck, what did it go on? I bought myself uh, a pair of, well, a set of 17-inch wheels for my parents to a Corolla because cars <laughs> are my other passion in life. And, you know, when you're still living at home and you get a nice paycheck at your 37 grand a year, which I remember I was, I was being paid, um, then that's what you do with it. You just put a pair of sick mags on your Corolla and you was, just cruise around. Was your mum and dad also driving this car or was this just oh, yours were, now? they were. And how did they, they feel about it being souped up with no, the mag wheels? They noted that the ride was significantly harder. <laughs> <laughs> on the very thin tyres and the huge wheels. But they were, they were very, very, uh, very supportive because uh, mum's a huge car person as well and she'd always uh, supported my my love for cars. Actually, in, as a kid, I wanted to become a car designer. I've got, I've got lever arch files of, of cars that I drew, but... Uh, that was not a career that was meant to be. It's more of a hobby these days. <laughs> you opened your own immigration law firm in, in 2014. Tell me about the kind of work that you do there. What's, what's the focus? So immigration law, yeah, it's stuck with me for, for quite some time. It's a very interesting area. It's, it's people-based. Um, I have a love, a strange love for uh, obscure countries, unnecessary bureaucracy, red tape, and yeah, admin, I really enjoyed administrative law because you've got a black and white framework with some grey areas for creativity. It's probably where that creativity uh, sort of comes into, into play. But uh, after having 
worked for the government after having worked for, for many uh, various different law firms. Me and my business partner, who is still my business partner today, in 2014 decided to open our own immigration law firm and we are now, we are now 30 people across two offices and it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a success story, which I never thought would be the case, especially for a person who said, I don't really want to study law, um, being the partner of a law firm now. It shows how unpredictable life, life can be. There are big human stories often behind migration law. What are some of the, the people, some of the cases that stand out? Well, two cases probably stand out uh, most significantly. One uh, is a, a family with a heavily disabled uh, child who had been struggling to secure permanent residence for some time, had been through various appeals, tribunals, uh, because of the health requirement, the very strict health requirements for Australian visas were unable to secure permanent residence because the child with a disability was considered to be a financial burden on, on, on Australia. So we're doing a lot of work in that space in terms of lobbying as well to try to have those rules changed. But making that phone call to that family finally after, I think, 10 or 12 years of fighting and saying, you're permanent residence now, you can stay, it just meant so much. I'd, I'd known that family, I'd visited them, I'd, you know, you develop this, this beautiful connection with them and making that phone call is, is such a great achievement, it's such a great feeling and it's so vastly different to that elation that you get from, you know, being on stage and playing to thousands of people, but it's such a different part of the, the emotional spectrum and that being able to do both is marvellous. The other one I'd probably say was a landmark case where we challenged the government's policy of dragging asylum seeker boats to the port of Ashmore Reef to prohibit them from lodging uh, further asylum applications. We challenged that in the Federal Circuit Court and then appealed that to the Federal Court and we essentially uh, were able to ensure that you know about 2,500 asylum seekers had the chance to lodge a proper visa application like they should have had in the first place without this draconian policy. So you do get to make some very, very interesting impacts. Not all the time. Sometimes it's very boring administrative work but you do get those moments where you can really feel like you're helping people and making a difference, and that's the nice part about immigration law. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Take me back now, Danny, to the misty origins of Voyager. How did the band start? They started from a, a desire to want to do heavy music that was melodic, that was keyboard-driven, and that was not present in Perth at the time. I remember very much struggling to find people who would be interested in that. Um, metal in Perth at that time was very much, you know, death and black metal and sort of very shouty. And, and I, was, I was into that, don't get me wrong, and I was very much part of a, a, that scene. But, you know, my classical background and just my love for melody just made me want to go, okay, well, let's, let's turn towards Europe sonically a little bit more and let's, let's keep the heaviness, but let's also do something melodic. And I met a couple of people at university. You know, you generally meet people by their metal T-shirts and you go, <laughs> hey, you, you're wearing that shirt. Let's be friends. It's really lovely. It's kind of like the playground when you're five years old. Let's be friends because it was just so rare. So I met a couple of people and we wrote a song called The Cosmic Armageddon Part 1. <laughs> And right, and it was cool because it was it was vastly different. It was melodic. It was neoclassical. It had keyboards, and it was all oh, there's something in this. And we entered the battle of the bands, like you do at university, and played at the tav at the, at the pub there at the university. And people were like, what is what is this? What is this 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 cool, entertaining? kind of quasi heavy metal, progressive, neoclassical stuff. It was stuff that just, their minds were blown because there was nothing like that in, in Perth at the time. And so from that developed the Voyager. We just wanted to play heavy, melodic music. And the kind of music you're describing, Danny, I think it's got, it's always got this kind of camp element. Like it can be over the top, it can be full of showmanship and, and kind of Baroque, but at the same time, it wears big heartfelt emotion on its sleeve. Is that, is that how you see it? These two currents absolutely. of kind of big show but big heart at the same big time. Big show, big heart. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was a that was difficult because to to be honest, you know, in the early nineties in in Perth and probably across Australia and across a lot of scenes, you know, the, the metal underground was 
probably more homophobic than anything else. You know, there was no there was no room for campness. It was all about toughness. But if you listen to metal, it, like it's super. The eighties look Judas Priest is super homoerotic stuff. You know, it's showy and it's it's a spectacle. So to get to get over that sort of macho chest beating metal and to go, hey guys, let's actually put a bit of emotion, a bit of fun into it as well. That was a struggle because you know you would be like, oh, keyboards kind of keyboards and metal. Well, God, what's that? Explain to me how the keyboards work because that means you need to introduce us to the magical instrument of the guitar. What is it and how did it come into your life? Well, I used to have a double keyboard stack, which would obscure me from the crowd, which was not conducive to being a front man. So at some point in 2010, my my best my bestest friends in the whole wide world decided what better way to uh, congratulate Danny for his birthday uh, than to buy him uh, this wonderful contraption called the Keytar. And I remember my friend Jacques trawling eBay and I think he found some sort of, you know, steel-made Ukrainian Keytar, which unfortunately never made it in the mail. He's probably still got, lost the deposit for that. But then the Roland AX1 was this beautiful red um, 1988 piece of largely plastic but it was just so awesome. And when I was presented with it, I just remember thinking, this is going to transform me as a front person and and the band. And I remember introducing it to the band. You know, we'd done tours in you know, Europe and UK and all sort of stuff in the US before. But this enabled me to be a, a front man and have the microphone and jump around the stage. And it was it was quite transformative. So it's and like having a thing... mini keyboard, but on a on a strap over, uh, you know, that you'd wear oh, like look, a guitar, but you can play Sarah, like a it's keyboard. Just, it's just a keyboard. It's really just a keyboard. <laughs> but you just wear it like a guitar and it's marginally cooler. Like, let's let's face it. <laughs> but, you know, you've got the, the, the left hand, you know, there's like a ribbon pad. You can do some sort of pitch bending and, and, and it, just, it just looks cool. And you really don't have to do very much with it. You just... You take it out of its case, you, you strap it around and you, and you raise it live and people just go nuts. They just love it. And I don't know what it is about <laughs> it. Some but power. It's, it's power. <laughs> you know, Pseudo Echo got it right when they had this amazing power. And it's red and it just it, it's just cool. And then you do a solo on it and people just absolutely love it. And I think that was transformative also in terms of going from something a bit more neoclassical, which is the early Voyager, to a little bit more of the 80s vibe. And I've always been a huge fan of the 80s and the 80s, you know, modern talking, Duran Duran, Tears for Fears and all sorts of stuff. And that's all very heavily synth-based. So when you move to, to that image, you know, the music kind of goes with it. What's the crowd like at a Voyager concert? Oh, the crowd's incredible. They're just the, the most wonderful people and it just brings a smile to my face and it bring, that in turn brings a smile to their face, you know. The crowd realises that whether it's whether they're seeing us for the first time or they're diehard fans, they realise that we take our music seriously but not ourselves as people or, or well, or musicians necessarily. You can have a bit of fun because at the end of the day it's a show. I've been to so many concerts where I've been so bored after half an hour because the band is just standing there and just playing the songs like it was on CD, just with just really loud and slightly worse sound quality, right? <laughs> That's not what a show is about. You know, a show is, is about entertaining. It's, a, it's about banter. It's about going off the rails a bit, you know, stopping the show, doing a little keyboard solo, something like that. It's, it's entertainment at the end of the day. So the, the, the crowd feeds off that. What's a gig that sticks in your memory as really being an exuberant love fest like, like you're describing? Uh, so many become exuberant love fests and some, some don't. Some are, some are career-defining moments where you want to throw in the towel and, and, and give it all up. Um, but when you, as a, as a synth, you know, progressive, neoclassical, epic, progressive rock band, whatever you want to call us, metal band from Perth, Western Australia, when you venture to a place like Mexico, for instance, and you play Mexico City and you've never played there before and the crowd is literally almost in tears because they're so happy that you are there and they're singing every single word and you've, you've never met these people, you've never seen them, you've never, you didn't even know that, that they know that you exist and they're crying and they're, you know, in their lovely Mexican accent going, boy, I get it, we love boy, I get it, boy, I get it. <laughs> and, and just this genuine love fest. And I remember at the end of it coming out and just almost being in tears myself and I remember singing the first couple of lines of Besame Mucho, which is a very famous Mexican song, and then the whole crowd just continued. And it was just such a wonderful cross-cultural 
moment where you really realise like it doesn't matter where you're from, music is what connects people. So when you have those moments, you just go, you know, that that crappy gig that I did last week, that means nothing now because this is where the magic is at. Well, tell me about a gig you did at the White Hart Hotel in in the south of England, which seems to have combined both the highs and the lows of, of what you're describing. It's... It's one of those moments which, if you have, if you haven't seen Spinal Tap, you know, watch it because it, that movie brings both a tear and 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 joy to to my eyes. It's it shows the huge roller coaster that is live music and being in an original band. We just played Birmingham to like literally no people, and I said I can't do this anymore. And we'd rocked up at the White Hart Hotel in uh, in Bridgewater, which is lovely. It's, I think it's in Devonshire. Lovely country, you know, <laughs> cows and clotted cream scones and all sorts of lovely things. How do they love and their synth prog rock there in that they, lovely country? Apparently they do, but they just didn't know about our show. Um, <laughs> so we rock up and, it, you know, it's a pretty much a disused Skittles alley that was our stage. There was people playing darts, you know, as soon as we started sound checking, people were like, shut up, we're trying to play darts. There was bikies outside giving us the middle finger, the two support bands had pulled out because the show was just so so awful, so crap. And we just decided, uh, I don't think anyone's going to come to this. I think we need to pull the pin. Our drummer in his beautiful positive enthusiasm found a blackboard and he was drawing Voyager logos on the blackboard <laughs> and it started raining. Like, what point of our career have we reached here that, that we have to do this? And then we're literally about to pull the pin and in comes this gentleman in a wheelchair you know, I think he was a, he was probably a quadriplegic and he had the little sort of remote control, you know, the, the ones that you operate with your chin. Mm-hmm. And he comes in and on his little tray in the wheelchair, he's got the entire Voyager back catalogue discography, CDs, and he just looks at us and he, and he looks, you know, makes eye contact with every single one of us and says, this is the greatest day of my life. I can't believe you're playing in my hometown <laughs> and it's my birthday. I'm here for a fundraising for ALS. And I'm just so excited to be here. So we looked at each other and looked at this guy and said, mate, what, what do you want to hear? Like, would you, this, is a show, this is a show for you. So we ended up just playing a 45-minute set for, the, you know, for this guy who, who probably to this day was probably one of the greatest moments oh, of, of his life. That's fabulous. That is a, right? a fan's dream come true. That's great. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh. And I just thought I put myself in that position. I thought if that was me... And then this band that I've revered and loved and collected all their stuff and was into their bootlegs and whatever, and, and they were playing in my village my to dodgy no pub. one except for me. <laughs> oh, it was just glorious. Um, so, you know, such is, such is the life, uh, the, the ups and downs of, of live music. It's a tough industry, I tell you. Well, let's talk about Eurovision, Danny, you know, which some Australians are still fairly new to. But what place did it have in your childhood, Eurovision? A huge place. I grew up with it. It's part of German culture, you know, whether you like it or not. Everyone knows about it. It's been around since the 1950s. And there was there was this record, I remember it, and I've still got it now, and I found it recently, just before Eurovision, that my mum had. It was a it was a double vinyl, you know, 1981, my birth year, Eurovision, all the hits. And it had France Gall and, you know, had Celine Dion and all this awesome stuff on it, which I think was pre-Celine Dion. Anyway, I digress. I would sit there as a kid in front of my parents' record collection and, and look at them. There was a lot of ABBA. And I remember Eurovision songs and the sort of schlager type, very melodic style of music being very influential. And it's, it's probably there in the, in the classical where my love for melody comes from because melody is, is paramount. And that's what ABBA did. And I think ABBA was a huge, huge influence on me as a, as a child. Wonderful songs, but incredibly complex underneath. So ABBA being, of course, the Eurovision poster child. Yeah, it, it, it was a huge part of my life. Probably faded a little bit when I came to Australia and I went through my extreme, you know, black and death metal phase. But then through uni, again, the magic of Eurovision was, was reinvigorated. And we used to have Eurovision parties at, <laughs> at, at people's houses. You know, you had the Eurovision drinking game, all these kinds of things. You know, how many times can you wink at the camera, fireworks, explosions, all that sort of stuff. And it just really became... Uh, such a cemented part of, well, it's Eurovision time. Like, you know, what are we doing this year? So it, it was very, very much part of my life. And I just never imagined to be part of it. Goodness. So ever. in terms of fairy tales, Danny, how did this impossible dream that you and Voyager could one day perform in Eurovision, how did that take shape? Well, we kind of always had this sort of career going on on the side, you know, wasn't Eurovision related at all. And we never really had Eurovision in our sights. You know, we're doing our, our tours, we're doing our UK, uh, US, Japan, played Indonesia, we played all over them, we had, you know, seven seven albums. And, you know, we had a good place in, in terms of the the niche market that we kind of occupy. 
But then when Australia became part of Eurovision in 2015 with, with Guy Sebastian, I was like, oh, this is cool. And I remember someone wrote, hashtag Voyager for Eurovision, you know, and, and this, I think there's still a picture of, of me wielding my guitar and it said, hashtag Voyager for Eurovision. I was like, that is absurd, but hey, yeah, why not? Because throughout our performances, wherever we are, People always go, oh, you guys would be great on Eurovision. I'm like, yeah, thanks. What are they seeing that makes them say that, do you think? They're, they're seeing a show, they're seeing catchy songs, and they're seeing a band which just has fun on stage. And that fun is infectious. And when you infect the crowd with that, it's very likely to come across television as well. So I think people see that and go, God, I've seen some boring acts on Eurovision. You guys would absolutely kill it, you know. <laughs> we've, got all, we've got a guitar, we've got you know, guitar, so we've got it all. Keith, I've got it all. I've got long hair. I've got, got it all. Come on. Got it all. Got, what more do you need? Yeah. Well, it took you a little while. Like, as, as you say, was it 2015 that, that Australia was invited to participate? Yes. And And there were a few times you got close. What was different this year? What was the process? Well, yeah, a few times I got close. 2019, I went to Eurovision myself uh, with my family in Tel Aviv. I was there as a fan. In fact, I'm, I think I'm in the Eurovision movie with Will Ferrell because he came on stage once and said, hey, we're, guys, you know, we're filming, make some noise, and I'm in there. Someone circled me once uh, <laughs> watching the movie, and I'm like this tiny, tiny creature in the front there. So when, I, when you see the show and you get into that fever, you're like, man, I could, I could do this. I could definitely do this. And so when Australia decides which is the Australian, I guess, finals for selecting the, the Australian participant. When, when that sort of really got on my radar in 2020, we thought, well, let's, let's enter. We've got some great songs. And we entered and Runaway came 11th and they did a small snippet on SBS where Joel and Miff were like, these are the ones that almost made it. And there was us and we're like, this is, this is crazy. Like what? They're playing us on Eurovision Australia Decides. And then 2021, COVID, and then 2022, we entered Dreamer and Dreamer got in and we, we came second. The public vote was overwhelmingly ours. We got robbed by the jury, as I'm told by fans. Um, <laughs> and for us to be able to get to that level, we're like, this is crazy. Like we put on this show and it was such a great experience and people were like, oh, you must have been really upset. And I was like, no, no, no. We're a metal band from Perth, Western Australia. And here we are. We're the underdog and the country picked us to go second. Like, this is crazy. And then we thought, do we do this again? I thought, maybe not. It's, look, it's just, it's a, nah, the song's got to be right. And then I remember when we wrote Promise and the, you know, there was a couple of ideas floating around and then I wrote that beginning part of Promise and our bass player Alex went, yeah, there's something in this. You, you, you got it. You, let's, 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 let's flesh this out. And we did. And then they cancelled Australia to science. They were like, we're just going to pick someone. And we thought, well, it's going to be. Delta or Charlie or someone. <laughs> it's not going to be Voyager. That's absurd. And then we got the call from the producers and they said, well, you're, you're going to Liverpool. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it, you know, and we had to keep it a secret for months. Oh, and how it was hard so that? difficult. Oh. It was so difficult. Um, and we were doing all this preparation stuff, you know, shooting videos out in the outback and stuff. And people were like, oh, you guys are doing a lot. Yeah, but it's just, you know, we've got a new album coming up. That was always the excuse. And then when we were announced, it just all became very real. And then when you realise the magnitude of what's about to happen, it just blows your mind and you, your life becomes Eurovision because, you know, as you said, there's, there's a couple of hundred million people about to watch you and the pressure is incredible, but it's so much fun. You already had this song, Promise. How did you go about honing it for this global audience? What, was, what went on? Yeah, well, Dreamer was very much a, a Voyager song that was pre-existing that we kind of cut down to three minutes, which is, for those of you who don't know, three minutes is the, the, the time limit for a, for a Eurovision song, and you're allowed a maximum of six people. So with, with Promise, we wanted, to, we wanted to write it for the stage. We had staging in mind. And Promise, if you listen to it, it starts off mysterious, it builds up, and there's sort of this sunrise moment and then it goes bang and it's like, whoa, what is this? Oh, it's metal, it's rock, it's, it's 80s, it's whatever. And then it pulls back and then the chorus again, which everyone, no matter what language you speak, you can sing along to. And then there's this left turn where we do a stop, full blackout, and then bang, it's, the gr it's a growl. Yes, but still, still metal. It's a growl and it's this, this complete chaos that just sort of, pulls you down into the doldrums and then spits you out on the other side to this glorious moment where, you know, this wonderful piano bit, there's even a bit of harpsichord in there, you know, back to my Baroque days. 
and then there's a keyboard, so a guitar solo and a guitar solo on the top of a mountain and then this glorious ending. Like you just, we just wanted to make sure we fit as much as possible of what Voyager does best into those three minutes and just present people with this glorious journey of what I think is just a spectacle if you if you like heavy music or not, you've got to come through. You've got to come in for the journey and just enjoy the ride and come out at the other side just smiling. I want people, and I think we achieved that, people would have the biggest smile on their face when they heard that last note and that explosion at the end. And what was the vision for the set when you say you had it, had that in mind? Yeah, I wanted I wanted movement. We needed movement because it really was a journey. And I think that we're going to put me on a on a motorbike in the beginning, which was cool. But I'm not a motorbike guy. And our manager Lulu, who's just you know, she's powerhouse from South Croydon, she's like, nah, we're not doing that. You're not you're not a motorbike guy. We're going to get you it's something else. What about what about your car? And we'd used the Toyota MR2, which is this this quintessentially 80s sort of angular thing that looks like a tiny spaceship. It's the poor man's Ferrari. We've used it in Voyager clips before just because it's awesome and it looks 80s. It's got pop-up headlights, got the whole thing. She goes, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to get that car on stage in Liverpool. I said, that's absurd. There's no way. And we made it happen. Way. Don't tell me it's like the piano being dismantled and taken across borders. How did you get we the get, car yes, there? We get the car from Soviet <laughs> Union all the way to Liverpool. <laughs> uh, well, there was a degree of dismantling. Um, the, the the truth of the story is, you know, I don't want to get let the truth get in the way of a good yarn, as Chopper Reed said, but the truth of the story is that I called up Neil, who I've been buying parts of for years. You know, when you're into, you're into old cars, there's always some guy that's got some parts. Usually and he's called in, Neil. Usually called Neil. So Neil's in Wales. I, I wrote to him and said, Neil, we've got this thing, with this proposal. And he goes, is this a Nigerian scam? And I said, no, no, it's not. <laughs> We're doing Eurovision. And he goes, let's make it happen. This is amazing. So we had weight restrictions because they had LED panels at the stage on Liverpool. It could be no more than 400 kilos per panel. And Neil made it happen. He stripped a car, which was exactly the same as mine, exactly the same specifications. I think his was a 1989. And we wheeled it onto that stage. We put a bunch of lights in, put the ketar next, next to me. And it was funny because getting onto that stage, getting in that car, it, it was a piece of home because I felt so comfortable <laughs> all of a sudden. All the nervousness was gone because I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm just hanging out in my car. It's just a normal day. <laughs> well, you say that, but what was the moment like before you went on stage in Liverpool in front of that enormous crowd, part of that huge machine of Eurovision with things coming off and on? You know, I imagine the logistics are incredibly tight. What, what was your state oh, of mind? Incredibly. you got 40-minute changeovers, so it's like you get that tap on the shoulder and it's like, okay, go. And you're running on stage. And we've done it so many times before. We've done it at the semi-final too, which we won, by the way. Um, and so we were were well prepared and it, was, it meant, meant a lot for us to get through to the, the final after semi-final uh, two. But once we'd gotten through the final, it was like everything now is just gravy. Let's just have fun. But those those moments where you're in there and you hear in your in your ears, you hear this Australia and it's like, and then this is, and you're like, oh God, oh God, I've got to remember to not screw up the, the, the lyrics, to not screw up the singing, to remember where to stand up, to remember which camera out of the 33 cameras I have to look at, where to look at whom, where to what. It's just, it's a completely different performance than when you're live and you're ad-libbing and I can just go across to whichever part of the stage I want. Can you remember it, Danny, or did it all just sort of like no, go past I can, and flash? No, I can, I can. No, I can remember those three minutes, absolutely. It was just glorious. It was glorious because you feel... You feel like you've got it in under control and especially knowing we've been doing this for 20 years plus. We've played all over the world and we've had technical issues like you wouldn't believe in all sorts of places. Nothing nothing can discombobulate us for want of a better word. And it's like we got this and now we're just going to have fun. And fun we did and the 11,000 people that were in the stadium were just, they just brought it, you know, you had your in-ear monitors shoved so far in your ear that you're not supposed to hear the crowd, but you can still hear them over it. And at some point I remember, you know, we just took them out because we wanted to hear the roar. And you forget about the 162 million people that are watching you live on television. Yes, you're looking at the cameras, but you feel like if I've got the attention of the crowd there and I can channel some of that and spit it back into those cameras, those people out there will know what the vibe is like here. And I I don't know. I think we brought it. You hundred percent brought it, and it just looked like you were having so much fun. Like you were, you were hitting every mark, but you could just feel the 
the pleasure, just feel the joy that you guys had on stage. I was actually, it was uh, broadcast, the, the timing in Australia was early Sunday morning. It was actually Mother's Day and I was sitting in bed with my kids eating croissants, gorging <laughs> also on the on the greatness that is Eurovision. And I think my favourite moment was when the camera panned to you and you were shuffling a, a sandwich or something into your mouth in front of this global <laughs> audience. And I thought, that is my nation. I felt very proud, Danny. Tell me about that sandwich moment. <laughs> Remember I told you that we don't take ourselves that seriously as human beings, but that's a quintessentially Australian thing, I think, isn't it? And, uh, you know, if I'd stayed in Germany, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have done that Did if I hadn't grown up in Australia. Did you know the camera was going to be on you in that moment? What happened? You, well, they send decoys, right? So the camera kind of, there's camera tips, steady cams that go on you, and then it's like, oh, is, is it going to be us? And sometimes it's a decoy. Sometimes it's not. So you go, oh, great, we're just going to have a sandwich. And I think because we'd previously had, you know, there was spillage of, of drinks, et cetera, I think we were told to tone it down a bit with the alcohol consumption, even though, <laughs> spoiler alert, it was actually water. Um, so we thought, well, we're going to have to have something. If we're going to have, going to have champagne, what about... These are long days. There was no catering, you know, so Mark's Spencer sandwiches was definitely on the agenda. And, you know, no one's going to get between me and that sandwich. <laughs> these are very long, gruelling days. And it's just nice to see what the internet does with these kinds of moments because it's entertaining at the end of the day. And, you know, you have fun and, you ha- of course, you ham it up a bit, no pun intended, but it's... um. I just, I just think it was very, very us to do that, just to have fun and, and not take it too seriously. Was your family there, Danny? Uh, my wife was there. Yes, my my children were not. They were they were shipped off to to the grandparents in in another European country. But my my wife was there, and probably about ten to fifteen of my closest friends were there as well. And to know that was absolutely magical because you know my wife especially had been part of the Voyager journey for such a long time, and for her. Like I asked her, what was it like? Hmm. She's like, I, I don't even remember. I don't know. It was too much. It was too much. It was too I was much. Gonna, I had to rewatch it later. She was probably more nervous than you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I remember asking her and she was saying, I just turned to my friends and was just like, what is happening? What's going on? Oh, my God. There's Danny. He's up there. What the hell? What's going on? <laughs> and what about your mum and dad? How do they um, think about the way that the Estran family has been returned to Europe in such glory? I think they, I mean, they're firstly, they watched it uh, live at 3am at the Euro Club Perth. But I think they saw, especially me on the, you know, on the red carpet, the turquoise carpet rather, you know, just interacting with media from all these different countries. And I think they, they were so proud to, to know that they had instilled all these cultural values or these linguistic, or this linguistic prowess, I guess, in me and that, that interest and that spark for, I guess, what is essentially mostly European culture. And I think they were just proud that I was such a well-rounded individual and I was able to sort of fit into to every part wherever I went, whether it was I was doing media with Lithuanian television or speaking to Maltese television and explaining Australian humour to them, you know. There was this real sense of connection and in some ways, as weird as this sounds, it was almost like I was born and raised for this event because... <laughs> You know, I could see it for, for uh, I could see it from an Australian perspective as in don't take yourself too seriously, but at the same time I knew enough about every single part of Eurovision and Eurovision culture and every single country that participated that I could cogently speak to every media and make connections with so many people. And for me it was the, one of the most glorious moments of my life. Danny, you were born for those three minutes and much more beyond, I'm sure, but definitely those three minutes. Thank you so much for, for being our guest on Conversations. It's been such a pleasure and it's so nice to reflect on it in this manner. Um, yeah, it's a nice synopsis of, of my life and uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty happy. I'm a pretty well-rounded, happy individual most of the time. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.